Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 11, and I'll tell you, um, this chapter is pretty remarkable. It is, uh, as Alford, uh, John Walford in his book, quotes from Alford, who's a famous theologian, commentarian, whatever you want to call him. He calls this chapter one of the most difficult in the whole apocalypse, right? The whole revelation. And it is. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a difficult uh, book. It's a difficult um, chapter in the midst of a difficult book. And as we look at that this morning, there's really three life application principles that I want to bring out for you. Because I, as we look through this, we're looking at something that hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward And so the question begins to be, how does it apply to us? What is it that we can, as believers, in our current moment, in our current day, what can we learn from this? How do we take something away from this that's applicable to our lives? And let me give you three. First of all, worshiping the Lord in truth. Worshiping the Lord in truth. How are we worshiping the Lord today in truth? Is it just a religion for us? Is it just a motion? Is it just a checkbox kind of list thing? Or is it something that is a lifestyle? It's something that's every day, every moment of every day. Secondly, walking in his power. You know, the truth of the matter is, folks, we don't do anything uh, for the Lord apart from him strengthening us. Paul talks about it uh, in the sense that we are strengthened with his strength in the inner man. And so all all the effort to produce fruit that I see within Christianity today. Folks, we got to get back to the basics and, and remember that it's about the roots. It's about being uh, deepened in the love of Christ. It's about being attached to the Lord in such a way that his life begins to flow through us because he alone is able to produce the fruit. So we walk in his power and then we wait for his timing. We wait for his timing. <laughs> Anybody else have trouble doing that? I'll tell you, there's times where uh, I want to get ahead so quick, right? I want to jump in the Lamborghini. And then there's times where, uh, you know, we fall and we get in the Yugo. You remember Yugos? <laughs> I never had the privilege of driving one. I drove Dacias in Romania, and they were kind of a Yugo minus 10. They were remarkable. Yugos were allowed into America. Dacias were not. <laughs> and, uh, but we always laughed. Uh, we, we don't want to get in the Dacia. We don't want to get in the Yugo, but we don't want to get in the Lamborghini either. We want to just stay right with the Lord, walk right with him, make sure we're going the speed that he wants us to go. When he chooses to speed up, we speed up with him. When he chooses to slow down and even sometimes stop, we're just waiting patiently on him waiting for his timing. Uh, as we get started, and we're going to look at chapter 11 in Revelation, let me thank you. I, I, over the last few weeks, we had sent out a letter to the body uh, concerning giving, and y'all have responded uh, in such a wonderful way. And, and so we, last week, uh, and I believe, and Chris knows all the details, I praise God, um, but we hit our mark in terms of budget giving uh, for the first time in a very long time. And so I want to thank you for that and appreciate uh, just your faithfulness to the Lord and giving. God's doing some amazing things, and we're working through some things. Obviously, we've got the uh, student ministry and the children's ministry that we're prayerfully considering what the Lord has for us. And we're really praying about a family pastor. 
uh, somebody that can come along and help oversee, shepherd this area in a way that it allows for a full scope and sequence. So you pray for us in that, and we'll pray uh, and ask the Lord to provide and to guide and direct. Uh, but there's a lot of wonderful things happening, and I appreciate all the councils that are involved. I appreciate the staff that is working hard in order to make sure that the things that need to be taken care of are being taken care of, and Tim and Sam with the property, and Chris with the finances coming alongside of you. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, I wish I could have them all come up and just stand and walk through what everybody has been doing. Uh, it, it's really remarkable. There's a lot of things that over the last uh, period of time um, we haven't been able to discuss because it just wouldn't be right. And the truth is, is I've gotten to watch how God is working in amazing ways and the Lord's sustaining power and the Lord's sustaining strength and his grace in the midst of some really challenging things uh, for me personally has grown me. I've, I've learned to trust our shepherd far more than what I've ever uh, done before in my life. And I thank God for that. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to pray. Amen. I want you to continue to pray and ask the Lord for wisdom and guidance, and let's keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Amen? Let's not get all caught up in so many of these sideline things that ultimately when we're in eternity, I can guarantee when we stand face to face with the Lord, it will not be a thought on our brains, right? Amen? Kind of like the Dallas and Green Bay game today. I had to give you your chance, Chad. I had to give you your chance, man. Y'all can pray for me. I've got a root of bitterness about this. I'm still stuck two years ago when they made the worst call in Dallas NFL uh, playoff history, and they said Des Bryant did not catch the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can pray for Chad because uh, I'm going to take him out today sometime. <laughs> I love you, brother. Hey, let's get into the Word and look at chapter 11, and let's look at this first uh, life principle, worshiping the Lord in truth, worshiping the Lord in truth. He starts out, he says, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. And so I believe this is the uh, indicator of the first half of the tribulation. Others want to put some of uh, this chapter into the second half of the tribulation, the seven-year period of time after the middle of the tribulation, uh, the two witnesses being in that second half. And I don't, I don't see that. I won't break fellowship over it. Um, but I believe this is in the first half. And in this particular uh, aspect of this uh, message, this text, what we have is um, several things. First of all, we have the establishment that there is a temple. And this is the third temple. This is the tribulation temple. In the midst of it, it's being measured. And, and I think it's really interesting because what's being measured uh, is the uh, temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And he talks about the court outside, and that's for the Gentiles. And he says, don't measure it. But the, the idea is that God owns this temple. Now, the, the interesting thing is that this is where the abomination of desolation is going to take place. This is where the Antichrist is going to set up uh, himself as if he is God. And the desecration that is, occurs in the middle of the tribulation begins uh, here. And it's in this particular temple. 
But there's a, a measuring. There is, in effect, a recognition that God is sovereign, that God is over worship, that God is over those who do worship. And so it's really interesting because in the midst of all this paganism and in the midst of all this rebellion and sin and what God's doing, uh, there is the description and the recognition that God is still sovereign and that God rules and that he reigns. This is the third temple. The first temple is the temple of Solomon. If you remember, Solomon built the first temple. David had prepared and he got all the things ready for the temple to be built. And Solomon went ahead and did that. It must have been an amazing temple with all the gold and all the different artwork that went into this and different things. People from all over the known world came to see this particular temple. And it was destroyed and they went into captivity into Babylon when they came back. The second temple, it was rebuilt. Ezra had a hand in that. And then later on, years later, Herod came and began to uh, refurbish the temple, adding on to it. He helped uh, broaden the court. He helped make sure that the temple mount was secure, and they added different things to the temple, but there's a whole bunch of different stuff that he did. But in effect, that's the second temple because it was just built on from the time after the Babylonian captivity uh, by Herod. So the question about this third temple is kind of interesting. The fact that it's there is, there's no question about that. The abomination of desolation takes place. It's in the Holy of Holies that this desecration takes place. So there has to be a temple. There's been sacrifices taking place throughout uh, the first three and a half years, evidently, or at least at the, the end of the first three and a half years, leading into the middle of the tribulation where the abomination of desolation takes place. So the fact that it's a functional temple uh, is clear. When is it built? Well, we don't know that for sure. We don't know if it's during the first part of the first three and a half years or if it was starting to be built prior to the signing of the covenant of the Antichrist with Israel, which immediately begins the tribulation. Either way, the fact is it's there and it has been built. They sacrificed, they returned Old Testament practices of worship, there are priests offering sacrifices in service. What's interesting to me is that I do not believe, and I think Isaiah 66 verses 1 through 6 speaks to this, I do not believe God accepts this worship. He does not accept, in effect, this temple. He's sovereign over it, he rules over it, but this is false worship. This is people who are doing religion. These are the Jews who, rather than receiving the Messiah, are continuing to go back to the old ways and do their religious practices in a way that I think Isaiah in chapter 66 deals with, and the Lord does not accept these sacrifices. What's interesting to me is that the abomination of desolation, the middle of the tribulation, we're about to get into the last three and a half years. The seventh trumpet is about to blow and the bowls are about to be poured out, which take up the last three and a half years. And all of the focus now begins to be on Israel itself and drawing them back to himself. The Lord drawing Israel back to himself. I don't know if you've been to Israel or not. Uh, been there several times with Gail Silvic and uh, Reggie and some of the members of Hoffmantown. It's been an amazing adventure. One of the interesting things is we went to what they call the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. 
And I'll never forget, I've been there several times, they have all the articles needed in order to do the sacrifices, in order to do the serving within the temple. They have all the plans for the temple to be rebuilt. That's already in place, folks. I was shocked to hear that. That was remarkable to me. I don't know if that hits you like it hits me and has hit me in the past, but the fact of the matter is, is if we know that there's a temple during the tribulation and now the Jews are in control of the Temple Mount area, and not only that, they have all the utensils. I'm talking about the priestly garments, the ephod. I'm talking about all the different things that they need in order to do the sacrifices as well as to do the sacrifices on, plus the plans for the temple itself. They have it all. They're ready to go. And I don't know if that causes you to look up a little bit, but I think it ought to. I think the Lord's coming back soon, folks. And the question is, are we ready? Are we walking in worship, true worship, not just a false religious worship, not just something where we're doing things for God and we're doing it in our own strength or we're doing it in our own thinking, but rather that we're actually yielding to the Lord and worshiping the Lord wholeheartedly and fully, and it's in truth. We are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Clearly, in this particular section of Scripture, these people were not doing that. See, people can get caught up in all kinds of religious practices. And folks, it's really easy for us to look outside and say, look at how many people are doing things that are not from the Lord. But the fact of the matter is we right here can do the very same thing. We can be serving. We can be participating. We can be giving. We can be doing, 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 doing. We can have all the activity. And on the outside, on the exterior, it looks religious. It looks spiritual. But guess what? God knows the heart. And the question is, are we worshiping the Lord in truth? Or are we just doing the exterior things? Are we just going through the motions? Are we just doing the checkboxes? Folks, you can get into the Word of God. You can memorize the Word of God. The Pharisees were really good at that. But they didn't worship in spirit and truth. And the question is, are we worshiping in spirit and truth? Are we worshiping? Are we yielding to the Lord in truth? Well, secondly, are we walking in his power? And in verse 3, he presents this picture of the two witnesses. And look at this. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, three and a half years, and I believe the witnesses are at the first part of the tribulation in the first three and a half years. In verse 4, he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, who are these witnesses? Uh, boy, that's all over the board, isn't it? Anybody study this? <laughs> so it could be Moses, right? It could be Elijah. And then we go back even further into the Old Testament, and boy, it's probably a long time since we said this guy's name. Who's the third guy that it could be? Enoch. Enoch, right? And Enoch and Elijah never died. They were taken up, right? Enoch walked with the Lord, and then he was taken up. Elijah was taken up in a, in a chariot of fire. And so some people wonder, some have looked at it and said, well, right? Hebrews says it's appointed for a man once to die, and then the judgment. These guys never died, and therefore they really could be the two witnesses. 
Some people think it's Moses and Elijah, and the reason for that is because they appeared with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? When the Lord was transfigured, Moses was on one side, Elijah was on the other. Elijah representing the prophets, Moses representing what? The law. And so the idea is that, well, maybe this is Moses and Elijah. And as we're going to see in just a moment, some of the things that these two witnesses do are pretty remarkable, and they sure sound a whole lot like things that Moses participated in and things that Elijah participated in. Well, as I said, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. Well, we got a problem if we're going to apply that specifically in every instance. In other words, what do we do with Lazarus, who was raised again from the dead and then later on died a second time? What about the rapture taking place? And what about people that have never died and believers are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, change in the twinkling of an eye? Are the, are the raptured saints going to have to physically die at some point? Because Hebrews 9.27 says, what about all the people that were resurrected at the death of Christ and began to prophesy and then later on died again? I mean, we got example after example after example. So I, I don't know that using the idea that Enoch and Elijah never died, which automatically proves they're the two witnesses. I don't know that that's the right way to go about this. I also don't know that it's the right way to go about this to say it's Moses and Elijah. And the reason I say that is because Elijah maybe serves as a good example of this, right? When the Lord came, who was John the Baptist? Not John Rupley eating locusts, but John the Baptist. <laughs> Does that gross you out as well? And he had stomach problems. I'm like, dude, no wonder. What? I mean, what? We got to get on him about that. I don't know. We maybe need to get him like a bowl of crickets when he comes home or something. Say, welcome home, brother. We want you to feel at home. And, you know, anyway. What did John the Baptist do? Wasn't he a forerunner of Christ? Was John the Baptist Elijah? Well, No. And the Lord made that very clear, and so did John the Baptist. He said, I'm not Elijah. I've come in the spirit of Elijah. And I think the idea, in some ways, is these witnesses are coming in the spirit of, perhaps, Moses and Elijah. I think Elijah, if anything, is coming prior to the tribulation. And again, I don't think it's the actual person of Elijah, but it is one who is like Elijah. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And I, I think the Lord is speaking specifically, or the, the prophet Malachi, through the Lord's inspiration. And later on, if you look in Matthew, you can see where the Lord is speaking to this issue. And he's saying, if you had believed and John the Baptist, Elijah wouldn't have to come. But in the same breath, he's saying John the Baptist actually isn't Elijah. And I think what he's saying is there's another type of Elijah who's coming prior to the tribulation who will instruct these families, instruct the hearts of the fathers and the children so that they will begin to turn back to the Lord. And I believe that may be the very group that the 144,000 are sealed out of at the beginning of the tribulation. So getting back to the witnesses, the point is, who are they? Well, I think they're not literally Elijah or Moses, but rather men from the tribulation period called to serve the Lord as his witnesses. Now, what's interesting is they are said to be in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 4. 
And I'm not going <laughs> to, should I ask you, to, well, can we have a speed Bible drill? Can you find Zechariah real fast? Some of you with, uh, some of you with computers and uh, you can find that pretty quick, so I won't do that. But if you can, find Zechariah chapter 4, look at verses 2 and following, because there's a prophecy here given, and there's an explanation that John is alluding to that he sees with regard to the two witnesses. Zechariah 4, 2, he says, it says to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, and with seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it, also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And in verse 5, he goes on, the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Again, this is a description of a lamppost with two olive trees next to it. What, what was burning within the lamp? How does a lamp actually burn? It needed olive oil. Where's the olive co oil coming from? It's coming from these trees. What's the picture here? Is it the olive, olive oil of the trees that is causing this? No, it's the Spirit of God that is empowering this. And if you look down and Chapter 4, verse 11 in Zechariah, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves, the oil filling the lamps? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. And so we get this picture in Revelation referring back to Zechariah of the two witnesses who are said to be, in effect, the two olive trees. It's an amazing thing because how are they doing this? How do they have the power uh, to do the things that they're doing? How is it that they're able to accomplish these things for the Lord? And I would suggest to you it's based on what Zechariah said. It's not by their strength, not by their power, but it's by the power of the Spirit of God. When you look at the power of these witnesses, I think you would agree that in many ways they are probably two of the most powerful prophets to ever walk the face of this earth. Look at Revelation 11.5. What happens if anyone wants to harm them? Speaking of the witnesses, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. <laughs> what? What? Here they are, witnesses. What are they witnesses of? They're witnesses of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have enemies that are coming against them. And when these enemies come against them, I don't know if it's technically, literally from their mouths, but there's certainly fire that is divine in origin coming down and wiping out the enemies. He goes on and he says this in verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky. What does that remind you of? Doesn't that remind you of Elijah? So that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. 
certainly this would remind uh, anybody who's been reading the Old Testament of Elijah and Moses. Elijah, he literally called down fire from heaven. You can look it up and read it later. 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a captain and 50 men that came in order to take Elijah to the king. And when they did so, fire came down from heaven and burned them all up. So the king sent another 50 uh, men to go get him with the captain. And they came to get Elijah. And for a second time, boom, gone. The third time, <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, but the captain kind of had a clue. And the captain got on his knees and said, spare us, please. I'm supposed to come and get you to take you to the king, but I know that I can't do it unless you're willing to go with me. So would you please spare us and gently, kindly come with us? And Elijah was told by the Lord, go with him. You can trust this one indicating that the other guys had come not just to take him to the king, but probably to kill him. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Wouldn't you love that sometimes? I mean, what the man? I mean, that's like, wow. It's a good thing I don't have that. <laughs> you know, some of these drivers be toast. Jonathan's driving now, and he, he understands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm glad he doesn't have this power too, you know. Well, Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years during the reign of Ahab. And then he prayed again, and it began to rain, so much so that it was a flood. Moses, certainly the plagues of Egypt, the water to blood, or every plague. I mean, these witnesses are powerful. But in verse 7, we see that they actually are killed, which is absolutely remarkable, folks. It's amazing to me how the Lord works in all these things. They're martyred for their testimony. In spite of their great power, uh, they are given, and I would put it this way, they are given the privilege of dying for the Lamb. We don't tend to think of it that way. We tend to think of safety. We tend to think of, you know, security. We tend to think of health and prosperity and all this stuff, but they're, they're actually given the privilege of dying for the lamb. In verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, folks, this is none other than Satan himself. Satan himself comes against these two witnesses, these two mighty prophets, and the Lord allows them to be killed but the Lord's not done with them. In verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. This is speaking of Jerusalem, which is, by the way, the center of the Antichrist's activity. And in verse 9, he says, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Those are literal days, not just the three and a half year period. Those are literal days. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Do what? Now we know that in our day and age technology has allowed us to see things taking place all over the world. The other day I got stuck in traffic and we were at a standstill and I started looking at my phone. Come on. Don't tell me you haven't done this either. And I thought, well, man, it's early in the morning, which means it's not too late at night over in Myanmar. So I'm going to use Viber, and let me see if I can get a hold of Carol and Emery. And doggone if I couldn't. Here I am driving down. Forgive me. I, no hands, no hands. Right there. 
But I'm talking to Emery and Carol in Myanmar while I'm here. I mean, you think about that instantaneously. Every once in a while it glitched and didn't kind of, and then I had to ask them to repeat or they had to. But for the most part, technology has allowed us to be in communication with people all over the world almost instantaneously. Folks, today I think it's very clear that when this particular uh, moment takes place and these prophets are dead laying in the street, technology, the whole world is going to see this. And what is the world's response? The world doesn't grieve. The world starts sending one another presents. Oh, they were tormenting us. Why were they being tormented? It's because they refused to believe in the Lamb. It's they refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation by grace through faith. They love their false worship. They were worshiping the Antichrist. And folks, think about how evil that is. Think about the judgment of God, which is about literally to be unleashed now in the last three and a half years. And why? Well, they've got a bit of a shocker. Because in verse 11, after the three and a half days, what happens? (laughs) Here they are giving gifts to one another. And they're celebrating the death, and they think they have victory, and now they can go live whatever way they want and continue on in their sinful, rebellious state. What happens to the two witnesses? The breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell upon those who were watching them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now think about that. Watch them is probably live on the internet and TV all over the world. And here they watch what's taking place. These people have been dead. These men have been dead for three and a half days. Everybody's celebrating, giving gifts to one another. And all of a sudden, here they are ascending into heaven alive. I think it's interesting. In that hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people, this is in Jerusalem itself, were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I don't know what to do with that, but potentially some of these people got saved because what is going on here? This is 144,000 during the first three and a half years sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people were saved and the two witnesses are witnessing. They are sharing the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of what they go through. God raises them from the dead and it is an immediate representation to the entire world of what they've been doing, which is false. How they're worshiping falsely. Not everybody gets saved, but evidently there's quite a group of people that give glory to God in heaven. Walverd puts it this way. He says, taking all the facts furnished, it's evident that these two witnesses have a combination of the greatest powers ever given prophets on earth. And this accounts for their ability to withstand their enemies for the entire period of 1,260 days, which is a three-and-a-half-year period of time. Walver puts the two witnesses in the second half of the tribulation. I really don't see that. I see that they're in the first um, three-and-a-half years, and we won't break fellowship over that. Third, waiting for his timing. Right? We, we, need to, we need to walk in such a way where we're worshiping the Lord in truth. We also need to walk in such a way where it's God's spirit. It's not by our might. It's not by our strength, but it's the spirit of God in us. But in the midst of that, we also need to wait on his timing. The third woe now sounds. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember, the, the, la- the last three trumpets are the three woes. And the final woe 
now begins to be sounded. It's coming. This is, again, I believe, in the middle of the tribulation. That's why I believe it is in the middle of the tribulation that this is taking place, because now we have the remaining three-and-a-half-year period of time. There's an announcement of the Lord's kingdom, and this is fascinating because it is an announcement in fact. In other words, they are announcing something that is about to take place. They are looking forward, but they are announcing it as a fact. God has said he's going to do this. God has said he's going to complete this. God has said this is what's going to happen. And even though the last three and a half years need to take place, they are announcing this as a done deal. Because when God says something, that settles it. You can bank on it. And even if it hasn't happened yet, in our time and in our understanding and in our experience, you can bet that it's going to take place. Because God said it. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The, the seventh trumpet now sounds, the seven bowls are about to be poured out and they are announcing that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. In other words, there's a three and a half year period of time that's going to take place to bring this about, but as far as they're concerned, it's over. Think about that. When God promises stuff to us, when God tells us what's going to happen in the future, do we absolutely live in light of that truth? Or do we keep putting it off? Do we keep saying, well, Lord, that's great, that's wonderful, but we get so caught up in the mundane things of the world and some of the things that are taking place that we forget that we're a heavenly people called by God to be his people, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we ought to be serving the Lord right now in light of the fact of what's going to take place sometime in the near future, which is his return. And do we see it that way? Or are we so caught up in the things, of the materialistic stuff of this world that we have forgotten that the greater reality is actually the spiritual one? Well, what happens? Well, there's worship in response to this, and that's exactly the point. Verse 16, the 24 elders, again, potentially depicting the church who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like we know the end and it's really close. Remember the strong angel? He said there's no, not going to be a, a delay any longer. There's not going to be a, a gap here any longer. What God has promised is going to take place. And here we see this happening again in the very throne room of the king. The nations were enraged, your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And again, this is looking forward because we're going to have the great white throne judgment, we're going to have the beam, we're going to have all this stuff taking place, but now they are worshiping God in light of what is about to take place, what is about to go down. Verse 19, the temple of God, and here's the response, and this is why I believe they're looking forward to something that is going to happen in a very short amount of time, namely the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. 
What's the response? Seventh trumpet is sound, a third woe has taken place. We're about to enter in to where we have the seven bowls being poured out in the last three and a half years where Israel is now the primary focus and God's gonna draw them back to himself and he's gonna come in a miraculous way at the end of that three and a half years in order to rescue his people and put an end to sin and rebellion once and for all at Armageddon. Well, we'll see it in the millennium later on, but in terms of this time frame. And what happens as a result of this worship as they're looking forward to what's going to happen and consider it in the present as a done deal? Heaven begins to open. The temple begins to open. The ark of the covenant appears in the temple. What's the ark a picture of? The ark is what uh, the Israelites constantly were following in the Old Testament. And again, I think the imagery here is so beautiful because it's like God saying, okay, that's enough. Now I'm going to come back and save my people and fulfill all the promises that I have made to them. Boy, what an amazing truth. Folks, how are we waiting for his timing? How do we consider it a done deal? How are we looking forward to what God has said is going to happen, but we're living today in light of that future fact? That's the point. Are we worshiping the Lord in truth? Are we walking strengthened and empowered by his spirit? And are we looking forward to these things? And do they begin to shape the way we live today? Or are we just kind of going through the motions? We just keep going through stuff. We just keep walking. Well, we got this checkbox. I like that Bible study. I enjoy, oh, that was good. I had my devotion over here. Yeah, yeah, that's all good. But I'm so caught up in the things of the world that I'm really not thinking about the things of God. Not really walking with the Lord. I'm not saying, Lord, being me what I'm not. Do through me what I could never do on my own, but reveal your glory through my life. See, folks, that's the question. How are we living? You know, we, we look at this balloon fiesta. It's amazing, isn't it? How many people from all over the world come to this thing? I, I shared it last week, Psalm 96.2, right? Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from what? Day to day. How today are we willing to say, in effect, we know that the Lord's coming back because that's a settled deal and we're willing to follow you today as a result of it, Lord. We consider it a done deal. We don't know exactly when it's gonna happen, but we know it will happen. So Lord, here we are, use us. May our lives be a testimony of your grace and your goodness and your mercy. And we're willing to proclaim the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us to those who need you, who don't have hope and don't even know you. What's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your life? How's God at work? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 